Happy birthday, Matthew! Oh boy, I'm <laughs> 40. <laughs> You're old now. I'm officially old. It's okay. We promised we'd grow old with each other, and it's happening. Yeah, so far so good. To Feels both of us. Just like I'm 39. <laughs> Well, um, your birthday also means that it's, it's October. October. <laughs> <laughs> and I really meant to release another episode in September, but it got really busy because school started back up again, so I had to teach. And of course, on the 7th of September, we have our wedding anniversary. That's right, 16 years together. And Matt came up with this idea this year for a getaway. Yeah, obviously with us not having released an episode in quite some time, we were overworked and overburdened and I needed to fix that somehow. So I was like, how do we just completely get away? And this is super cheesy and not really normally my thing. But I just Googled the word resort. <laughs> I was like, give me something that's like all expenses paid, whatever. Don't have to worry about it. Sure. And, uh, you know, the first one came up was like $800 a night. And I was not into that. But we did find something significantly less expensive. Only a two-hour drive away on the Chesapeake Bay on a little place called Kent Island. Ooh, an island resort. <laughs> yeah. That it- sounds like it's remote and isolated Hawaii it ain't but it was a really nice sweet little thing the thing about it is it didn't end up quite being the getaway we anticipated yeah we intended to make it a break from our usual lives in every respect you know no music no podcast no (laughs) e-commerce but instead it turned into a full-on fucking bog house adventure which was not at all our intent but we're gonna make it into an episode so a couple of episodes from now i'm intending on releasing three episodes in october and the third one of those is going to be our kent island adventure the first two of these three planned episodes that we're putting out in october are actually taken from an interview that we had with jed levin He is the chief historian and park archaeologist for the Independence National Historic Park, which is otherwise known as Independence Hall and the National Constitution Center area. Liberty Bell. Yeah. All of that stuff that Philadelphia is famous for history-wise. Although we are interviewing him, we have to say it, not in his capacity as a National Park Service employee, but as a private citizen and an archaeologist who has some really fascinating stories. Although before we get into that, I am really excited because I made a thing. I made a couple of things, actually. We, as you know, if you've gotten this far in the podcast, found a whole bunch of 18th century artifacts under our house. And some of them were actually made here in Philadelphia by uh, the Bonin and Morris Ceramics Factory. And they've got designs on them that I loved from the moment I found them in dirt, uh, in poo, whatever it is that we, we pulled them out of. And for the longest time, I wanted to do something with these designs. So what I have done is I very carefully recreated them in Photoshop, hand-painted these designs based off of photography that I did, and made them into coffee mugs. So you can buy a Bug House branded coffee mug with designs on them from the Bond and Morris factory from 17 se- between 1770 and 1772. 
So originally designed in Philadelphia, being recreated by Philadelphians, available for the first time in 250 years. That's right. And they're also marked with the little P on them so that you know for sure that they are legit. (laughs) Yes, I can't wait to throw one down our privy and confuse somebody way, way, way in the future. Um, We have a couple extra mug designs as well. I did a design for a black mug. Uh, It is important to me that we have things that are black. That's right, because Um, we're old school (laughs) semi-goths. That one has the image of the stained glass window that we talked about from the Colorado brothel yes lastly we have a lefty mug that i made based off of an illustration from the antoine probst the me are a french man illustration that we already have a shirt of so that's right it's a lefty mug because poor antoine he didn't have a thumb on his right hand so he would have drank out of this (laughs) coffee mug left-handed good and now if he does that he will see himself uh he can't do that he's dead and hanged but pro tip Right-handed people can also use the mug. (laughs) Yes, it's okay. I learned a lot about mug design in the last two weeks, and I got lazy in unreversing the Probst one. Anyway. If you go to boghouse.thehanna.org, you will see a link to the merch shop where you can buy one of these mugs. They're like how much each? About 15 bucks. We offer them in 11-ounce and 15-ounce sizes. So it depends on what size. Yeah. order and there's shipping involved and whatever but hey it would be really great if you want to support us and you want to show off your bug house pride or whatever but back to Jed Levin yes. uh, so we arrived at his house he lives here in Philadelphia in Santa City and the first thing we noticed when we arrived was his car <laughs> parked outside his house we could tell it was his car because he has one of those license plates like the borders frame things and it says on the top part it says archaeologist and on the bottom it says my career is in ruins (laughs) 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 and i was like that's totally jed's car yes we're in the right place oh my gosh (laughs) and then we uh we all three of us because our audio assistant kate came along she is here in the studio with us hitting record as we speak all three of us came into the house which was just the cutest prettiest house like it was so awesome on the inside like what were some of the things Uh, there was a lot of original woodwork it's uh what a 19th century row home just off of broad street i think and they've done up the inside with this incredible maximalist style that is totally up my alley (laughs) there's a very strong compatibility with how melissa decorates right down to the point where we shared mugs and plates there are a lot of things that uh yeah we were just walking around the house going like we have that oh my god we have that oh my god we have that too wow that's so great i also build terrariums they're not as good as jed's but Mm. there are these like beautiful terrarium diorama like displays with lights everywhere there was like a a stuffed peacock on a light fixture and then in the kitchen we were introduced (laughs) to first of all his lovely wife patty who was so hospitable and a great conversationalist as well and they fed us vietnamese french pastries and so good oh my gosh and delicious coffee and then we met the tortoise (laughs) the russian tortoise natasha (laughs) who came out and munched on food with us and 
Oh my as God. in flowers and and other strange veggie things. She that... ate flowers. <laughs> I just like a fairy. I'm so. Oh my God. I was I, totally it in was love a lot. with everything. Um, and then we sat down and had this amazing conversation, which we recorded and which you will listen to right now. Take a seat. You're in the Bog House. I'm really, no. I'm really interested in right. in how far back the idea of abolition actually goes. Right. Modern America seems to want to forget, right. like that. No, no, no. We knew all along. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, we knew right. all along exactly that this was right. a shitty yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and it it also isn't a straight line. So prior to the Civil War, the closest we came to abolition was right around the Revolution. Sure. Um, that makes sense. Right. Um, and then it partially because of changes in agriculture, cotton became very profitable mm. with the development of the cotton gin. Slavery became a viable institution again. It was perhaps dying out at the time of the, of the revolution or sure. around there, becoming less you know viable. Right. And so it was conceivable, and there was talk about it. Right. People forget that, and they also forgive the founding fathers by saying, "Well, everybody did it." Which, well, they did let, it. let's no, let's we'll yeah, yeah. okay. Hey, we're in Jed Levin's amazing sitting room on the first floor, uh, surrounded by books, one of which we actually just bought, um, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, which we'll get into in another episode. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But more importantly, we have in front of us Jed Levin. So we've talked on the podcast about Rob Hunter, the archaeologist who drove up from Colonial Williamsburg to take a look at our Bonnet and Morris. And one of the things he said to us was, have you met Debbie Miller, who works at the National Park Service? She doesn't actually work for it, but she works at it. And we said, no, we have no idea of who <laughs> we to We don't know t- what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know who to talk to in Philadelphia. We tried talking to the wrong people and they told us to go away. So we, <laughs> we, we don't know who the right people are. And so he introduced us to Debbie. And Debbie said, well, you should come to my workplace and check out the Bonnet and Morris that we have and all of these artifacts. And we said, okay, sure. So we went to, what was that This is on Chestnut Street. That's right. You went to what um, was and actually still currently is the location of the Independence Park Archaeology Lab. Uh-huh. We've now moved that lab to the First Bank of the United States. Right. Which is its third location, actually, <laughs> and counting. Right, because uh, the first lo- location was where the Museum of the American exactly, Revolution before is. before it was the museum, when, it, when the park had its old visitor center there. Right. You know right. a few things about that. I knew a few <laughs> things about that, yes. Yes, we had a lab there for many years. Well, not many years, but a number of years. A number of very good years where uh-huh. we, uh, tens of thousands of members of the public come visit us in that building yeah. um, before it was um, traded, actually, for for a parkland. Um, in, like, park- Valley Forge? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And um, with the Museum of the American Revolution, they gave us land they had adjacent to the Valley Forge unit that the National Park Service runs. And in exchange, they got... 
most of what our former visitor center, <laughs> including my lab. Oh, yeah. so I know. I it's know. like a weird. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, mm. it, was, it was a terrible building, but a great place for a lab. And we worked there for a number of years and welcomed, as I say, tens of thousands of members of the public in to watch us work. So you run that lab. You, you, yes, you, you that's part of my job. You know, it has been part of my job right. um, uh, for the National Park Service. So we met you then, and I'm pretty sure right away... Well, we didn't have a podcast at the time, but right away I was like, this guy is really interesting and has a lot of amazing stories. <laughs> and then we've um, we've run into you a few more times over the last, well, I guess it's been a couple of years now. In a couple of years now. Oh my um, gosh. Time. And also you just come up when we start searching about Philadelphia archaeology. Wouldn't you know? <laughs> so how long have you been in Philadelphia doing archaeology? Well, I came to Philadelphia first. For graduate school. Oh, where right. did you go to graduate school? Uh, University of Pennsylvania. I was in a program in historical archaeology. Uh-huh. Prior to that, yeah, I had grown up in New York City in Brooklyn, the old, we're talking old school Brooklyn, before <laughs> it was the hipster center of the yeah. universe, <laughs> Yeah, when it was Brooklyn, just Brooklyn. I mean, um, that just makes you the ultimate hipster. You yeah, hipster I don't know. Before we, it was yeah, hipster. Right. Like, yeah, before it was cool. Uh, way before. <laughs> Believe me, it was not cool when I grew right, up right. there. So it's been quite amazing to see it morph into, I guess it's not anymore because oh, it's probably it's moved like, on, who knows, right. but, oh. but it has certainly changed since when I grew up. Were you always interested in American history or did you come to grad school to study something else and fall into it? Or? No, no, I was, um, I didn't know it at the time. I always had an interest in history just inherently found it fascinating Mm -hmm. didn't think much of it it wasn't my career path (laughs) in high school i always liked history classes because i could make trouble and argue with the 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 (laughs) teachers when they said things that were ridiculous untrue about american (laughs) history and i could raise my hand and be really obnoxious um, which i did um and i thought it was great i did not love school let me put it that way i was not good in school i have a learning disability i'm dyslexic Mm -hmm. so it was kind of a struggle Um, I hated school it was just torture except in my last two years of high school I kind of found a place a school where they didn't care anymore and that like gave me the the space I guess to really begin to appreciate some of it kind of ironic it was a not a good school but it was a good place for me yeah Um, yeah that's the only reason I went to college I was not gonna go I just couldn't wait to be done for high school but at that time, New York City had a very enlightened policy, what they called open admission free tuition at the city university system, huh. which said that anybody who graduated from a New York City high school, as long as you graduated, however you graduated, you were guaranteed a place in college in the city system, sure. and you didn't have to pay anything. Free um, college. We're free having college, this debate yeah. right now in like, Which now politics. it's so, so controversial right. and radical. It was the thing then in New York City... So, because I kind of like, uh, I began to, I wouldn't say like, I began to tolerate school <laughs> in my last two years, and there was this opportunity, I said, well, it's not going to cost my parents or me any money to give it a try, so why not? And I went to City College, uh-huh. which was and is a great school, has sure. a long history, and I, I was going to study biology. That was my intent. I was interested in either marine biology or molecular biology. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, my gosh. We also have a molecular biologist friend. Do you really? So, yes. He is collecting dirt samples from the bottom of our privy to study for, oh, cool. um, what do you call them, bacteriophages. Oh, cool. Oh, so, yeah. That, yeah. That's, that, yeah. Let me know 
I'd, I'd love to see the results. I know, yes. I know. Yeah. He's he's giving it to his undergrad students at uh, which La Salle. Oh, La Salle. Oh, to, great. To look at for bacteriophages because, of course, right. in a few years, antibiotics aren't going to work right, anymore, exactly. and bacteriophages yeah. are going to save us. So right. hopefully, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fast. Fingers crossed. When I was growing up, it was at the time that the genetic code was cracked. You oh, know, Watson so- and Crick. You know, just this amazing story of detective work and an unfolding. So that interests me. But I also love marine biology. I love the ocean. I love marine life. So Mm -hmm. when I got to City College, they were taking lots of kids then from New York City schools because of open admission, free tuition, not always fully ready for college. So yeah, they had this strict like counseling thing. You had to meet with the counselor to figure out what, you know. And I did, and and I said, this is what I want to do. And they looked at my record, and they go, hmm. With your math, you know, you're going to have to take some remedial math. Um, I like that was not my subject. Let me right. put it that sure. way. <laughs> so I was like, well, let me think about it. In the meantime, I took an anthropology course mm-hmm. because it was one of the courses that met core distributions they had then. You yep. take so much in these areas. You know, it was like a Chinese restaurant, like old fashioned Chinese <laughs> restaurant. You get one from column A, you pick one from column B, and you make a meal. Right. You know, I yeah. guess they don't do that anymore. But. <laughs> Um, so I took anthropology, and the first anthropology course I took was Intro to Cultural Anthropology and Linguistics. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Let me take the next part, which was Physical Anthropology and Archaeology. For the archaeology part, that was it. You know, um, I took it with a professor who whose specialty was historical arche- American historical archaeology. I'd never, as a kid growing up in Brooklyn, archaeology was like, that didn't really cross my... I mean, I knew about it. Right. It was sort of cool, you right. know, but it was Egypt and, yes. like, exotic, you know. Sure. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, but no. It didn't, but it didn't really seem to have any connection. I, I, I think I've said on the podcast before, I'm mm. like, I don't trust anyone who didn't go through, like, a I think Egypt archaeology is cool stage. Right. Like, you you know. It, it is. It's, like it's a, inherently cool. Right. Sure. If you find someone who's like, I was never interested in dinosaurs right. or Egypt, I'm like, right. what's wrong, wrong with you? With you. Right. <laughs> But I was never that, I mean, it was just like, you know, idly, wow, that's interesting. But it never, like, to be something I would do or even pursue. But historical archaeology, which was about our past and how specifically American culture developed and changed through time, fascinating. And then the idea you could learn this by digging stuff up was just amazing. It's so much more interesting to me than, like, dates and battles and right. you know all Absolute. of that stuff Rope just, memorization right plus it's really cool you got to get dirty yes which like <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that so you go to grad school in philadelphia did you stay in philadelphia after grad school or you went to do other stuff no what happened was um i'm here studying and um i had a fellowship wait otherwise i would not have gone to penn i actually had started graduate school me at, too <laughs> yeah yeah it's yeah it's the way it works the fellowship program is amazing yes. you can do grad school without going into six-figure debt. Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that. It's different than undergraduate. You can really do it without the huge, huge debt, yeah. generally. Yeah. And so I did get a fellowship. I was lucky. I had been going to City University Graduate Center prior to that, but I got this offer to come to Penn, so I did. What happened, actually, is in the last year of the fellowship, year five, I was working on my dissertation research, which, you know, is interminable, and working for my professor on the fellowship and it was the last year of the fellowship and I was sitting in his office going through microfilm looking at newspapers from a mining town in Utah from the 1870s. Oh my gosh. And 
uh, the phone rings and I hear his end of the call, which is, uh-huh, I don't know, I don't know, maybe I'll ask the students, bye. He kind of was that way when he didn't want to talk to the person on the phone. It was like, perfect, you know. So he hangs <laughs> up the phone and I kind of look at him and he goes, that was some guy from the park service. He's, they're, they're looking to hire an industrial archaeologist. You know any of the students who need work? And I'm like, yeah, me. <laughs> he said, what are you, what? I said, this is the last year of my fellowship. I've gotten used to eating. I kind of would like to eat next year. And he says, oh, really? Well, here's his number. Call him. So Jeez. academia. <laughs> He's like, what's this? Right. Non-academic work? Whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I called the guy and the rest is history. So I was hired f- for a job with the National Park Service that was stationed in, in D.C., Oh, okay. So they wanted an industrial archaeologist. I was working on Lowell, Massachusetts, which is an early industrial textile town in the United States, uh-huh. for my dissertation. So it kind of, I fit the bill. Worked out. So I took it. Uh, I took the job because I needed the work. So that's how you got your start? That's how I got my start. And first I commuted, then they moved me to D.C., never finished the dissertation. Because really? they had me working uh-huh. full time. Wait, so you never to. actually finished the grad degree? At no, well, I, I landed up taking it as a terminal master's, they call it. I just uh-huh. said, like, I'll take the master's because I finished all a thesis and all of yeah. the requirements. I had t- taken my Ph.D. exam. Right. Um, oh, but, I know exactly where you're but at. But I hadn't, you know, ABD, they sometimes yes. call it. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't quite ABD. I actually had not submitted the proposal, the proposal for, for the my, D- but the yeah, I was working on that. And then it was like, I just never had time. And, yep. and so um, I thought it was going to be just a temporary thing, you know, yeah. it would get me through graduate school for the Park Service. And I kind of, a few years later, I kind of like woke up and said, you know, I'm still here. You know, maybe this is a career. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like. And that's, the rest is history, as right. they say. So yeah. that was 30 years ago that wow. started. So then eventually they put you back in Philly? Yeah, they reorganized, um, per, you know, as periodically happens. <laughs> and they decided in their infinite wisdom to close that archaeology office in the D.C. area. Huh. I actually thought, well, that's it. You know, gigs up. Right, here we know. go. And after 10 years, I was, I'd got my 10 year pin, actually, <laughs> and, and just about, and, you know, like, well, it's closing. So I was like, okay. So I was in my office the, the penultimate day before I was due to be, you know, I was done and I was packing up and, uh, I actually emailed out to the Park Service email list, essentially. Uh, I, I wrote an, in emails kind of expressing a little bit of my anger um, and I said, well, that's just got no class, you know, what's the point? So I didn't Delete. send it. Yeah. <laughs> and I just sent with thanking the, the numerous people who are really great over my 10 years and who I really appreciated their friendship and their guidance and what I learned from them. And I just sent that out. I get a, an email back saying it ain't over till it's over from somebody in the, you know, who had worked with in Philadelphia. Like, what? You know, what does that mean? Right. And then a phone call, did so-and-so call you? I was like, no. And they said, okay. And they sort of hung up. And then I got a call offering me a job in Philadelphia right. for the park service. There are machinations yeah, happening like, above your head. Nuts. Right. I'm like, what? I thought this chapter was over. Right, exactly. Yeah. I was kind of okay with it at that point. I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was like, oh, you know. Yeah. Um, and so that's how it. And, and they offered me a job in Philly. And did I did they know that the uh, the NCC dig, the National Constitution Center dig, was going to happen yes, at this point? So that. this was like early 2000s? They did, or? Yes, they did know that. One of the reasons was they had this very large project going to start up in Philadelphia, the site where the National Constitution Center is today on Independence Mall. It was on Park Service property being developed by a third party 
private nonprofit, mm-hmm. basically. So because they were building inside the park, they'd have to do a lot of archaeology. Right. Um, federal land. It's federal land. There are federal laws. They had federal funds. There were many reasons why. So they, somebody in the Philadelphia office knew I had fairly extensive experience. I did a lot of urban archaeology in New York City. Oh, um, is it like the Five Points thing? Or? I, prior to Five Points. Okay. I saw a picture of you at Dish Camp. Did you hear about this? Uh, <laughs> that wasn't me. Couldn't have been <laughs> Maida put a picture up on yeah, the... On Maida the, would uh, have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... She pointed at this picture and she's like... I, oh, maybe Debbie pointed out. I don't know. Someone pointed at it and was like, who is that? And, you know, and I assumed that I wouldn't know who it was because I was like, right, oh, it's going right. to be some, some archaeologist yeah, right. that everyone else knows. Right. And then someone was like, it's Jed. And I was like, wait a minute. I do know who that is. <laughs> You had yeah. very curly hair. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, yes, indeed. Um, but I did a lot of work in Lower Manhattan, some of the earlier of the big urban archaeology projects in Lower Manhattan, which were very large, yeah. kind of wild because of the nature of doing that kind of work. Sure. Um, so they thought of me for the this project at the National Constitution Center site. And frankly, on that project, when he offered it, I was like, there's a voice in the back of my head said, say no, say no, say no. Because I know what happens with those projects. Oh. But there was a bigger voice that said, you know you should say no, but you know you're going to say yes. Yeah. And that other voice was right, and I said yes. And that is one of the projects they hired for me. It was broader than that, but they had a lot of industrial archaeology projects in the western part of the state. Wonderful places like Altoona and Johnstown. Sure. Oh, yeah. And, and surrounding areas. Yeah. Um, there was a very big nine-county project out there called the America's Industrial Heritage Project uh-huh. hmm. that was a congressional add-on. What is... Truthfully, in one way, but unfriendly, called pork barrel. Oh, um, sure. Western but, Pennsylvania is yeah, known for yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, as a Rust Belt community, there yeah. was no, and to, so yeah. there, you know, there was looking for ways for economic development. Absolutely. One of it was yeah. tourism around the rise of industry in America. Um, I mean, the the history of that place is the reason why Pennsylvania had any money exactly. at all. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. you know, we used to live in Harrisburg. Right. And the Capitol building is yes, stunning. A, 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 just a cast. Work just of art. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And you're walking through it and you're thinking like, oh, this was built, built by, yeah. because the right. steel coal, railroad coal steel. And, yeah. Absolutely. When that was going gangbusters, yeah. we yeah. had the money to do all this and those classical sculptures yeah. out front and all of the amazing art there. It's incredible. So, right. yeah. It's- and ultimately, I mean, I guess it's sort of a digression, but, you know, the story there is that industry that provides this wealth, but it's also the rise of the power of the labor movement in this country. Sure. You know, not just Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania was ground zero yes. for labor organizing. And, and it's the rise of labor unions that built the booming economy of the 1950s and where the legacy, the decaying legacy of that mm-hmm. by two things, the labor movement created Disposable income for working people and disposable time. Right. Um, They raised wages. They reduced working hours. The magical formula for American prosperity that we're now killing. Yes. But that is the story of, you know, that part of the country as well as much of the other. And it did need to be told. I'm a digression. I'm writing an opera about uh, Mother Jones and the March March of the Mill Children from Kensington to to Teddy Roosevelt. So, yes, no, this is all all extremely relevant to my life. Okay. But just on a wider scale, I mean, part of why we're doing this podcast is we fell into this 
as a matter of like, we found stuff and it, we learned that archaeology in a major way is storytelling. Right. And it's, you know, these objects telling the stories right. and you finding out exactly. about them. Yeah. Gateway yeah. to well, stories. Yeah. And the other, you know, the, the thing for me has always been that our history, you know, the history, anybody's history, but, you know, I'll speak mm-hmm. in terms of when I mean I my history, I don't mean my family history, uh, but the history of the society of which I am now a part mm-hmm. is this amazing story of all these people who built what we have today for good and for bad. It's mm-hmm. not a, an entirely uplifting story, right. though there's tremendous amounts of, you know, really uplifting aspects to it. There's also the heartbreaking a- aspects of it, but it's all more interesting than any fiction you could ever imagine. I'm ultimately. so on board with that. Yeah, <laughs> this stuff that we've discovered about, you know, our building and the history of our building right. that, you know, if you wrote about it in a book, it would That's sound right. like bullshit it would sound like a fairy tale (laughs) and even if it is a good story and i you know i love fiction i'm not you know but 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 you know it's a contrivance yeah it didn't happen it's somebody's imagination which is a wonderful thing when you hear a story about some aspect of the past big or small that reveals some amazing story about people and you know what their lives were like what they did what they suffered what they accomplished what they failed at what they made happen, what they failed to make happen on any number of levels. But there are these incredible stories. You know it happened. Right. It wasn't made up. There were real people. To me, that's incredibly exciting. Yeah, it's powerful. Entertaining, moving. And I think we owe those people um, to hear their stories and to acknowledge them and in some cases to honor them. And so to me, it's always been really compelling in that way. The ability to to walk to places where people walked. And, you know, if you trace someone's story, right. like we've done with some of the past owners of our building, we just did it last weekend by accident, but <laughs> right. we'll get into that uh, in a different podcast episode. But, you know, when you're walking right. um, and you're like, no, 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 I know that this person right. whose life I'm studying right. walked here. Right. When you pick up a pot and you see the fingerprints right. on Absolutely. the outside. And it happens many ways. And some of it, this house, yeah. one of the people who lived here, well, actually... There was two generations of Italian-American family lived here, you know, for an extremely long period of time. And they were um, the senior, the matriarch was a man named Zeferino Aversa, and he was a doctor. Uh-huh. And the build up to the Second World War before, I think it was before we were actually, the United States was actually a combatant. Um, Mr. Aversa was heard in, a, I believe it was in a bar, saying something about how if we got into the war, the Axis would basically kick our butt. And that was reported to the FBI. Oh, my gosh. And he was ordered to leave Philadelphia. He was ordered to relocate, I think the law said, 40 miles from the coast. What? Wow. Yes. I People know, know about what? it in the West Coast, you yeah. know, in the camps. In the, right, uh, right. But, but the law applied on the East Coast as well. Wow. Um, there weren't camps, but there were orders like this for people to... Like a sedition law? Like a- yes, essentially a sedition law. He was, he was seen as potentially a threat. Um, because he would be near critical infrastructure on the coast. So he was ordered to leave. Right. Who knows what the content of his speech, you know, we know what he supported. That could be a neutral statement just expressing, yeah, you know. Right, you just like, oh, they seem like a powerful army. And they were. Right. I mean, we had very little, so we don't know whether he was sympathetic to the Axis or not, but 
that simple speech was seen as being unacceptable. He was ordered to leave. He refused. Sure. sure. His case hmm. went all the way to the Supreme Court. I believe he ultimately won. <gasps> oh, um, wow. But you talk about a place. Yeah. When we learn that about this house, it connected us to this house in a way that it just being another, a nice house right. or a piece of property doesn't. Yes, yeah. it's a power and, of place. And you would never have found out that story probably if you right. hadn't bought the wouldn't. house of course and looked not. into it. Of course not. And then what an like what a amazing story. And it makes me think like you can connect that to things that are happening right exactly. now. And, exactly. And uh, when I got my citizenship in 2008, I had to fill out the citizenship forms and most Ameri- natural born American right. citizens don't know that there are questions on those right. forms that I am kind of uncomfortable right. with. There's a question that was like, have you ever by any means direct or indirect right. advocated right. for the, the violent, violent overthrow, overthrow of the government of, of the United of, States. Actually it was like of any government. Of any government. Oh, of any government. Okay. And Which, I was like We were like, is this a trick question? Right, right, right. Yeah, are yeah, like you supposed to say that yes if it's a bad if you're <laughs> right. from a bad country? <laughs> right, right, right. It was and yeah. I was thinking like this was in the middle of the Iraq war. Right. And I'm like, well I was kind of, I was against the Iraq yeah, war. Right. If I were pro right. the Iraq war, that's the violent overthrow yeah, of exactly. a government. Right, yes. So if I was saying yes here, then like this is a this is a weird yeah. trick right. question. I don't like it at all. And also like, you know, what wither the First Amendment. Right. You know, <laughs> well, the reason I'm not entirely surprised, except of the trick ending there, is because I had to do the same thing when I got a government job, federal government oh, job. Oh, you have to, you have to sign a loyalty out. Oh, you know, my gosh. Which says the United States, same thing, but right. it ends of the United States. Yes, okay. It did not say of, you of know, any country. Right, I guess because it's different for immigrants. Right. And, and I also had to list every organization I ever belonged to. Yes, we have to do that as well, which I was also very like, you know, it was, yeah, list every political club organization you've ever been a member of. And then, like, list all of the, you know, protests or demonstrations right. you've been to since the age of 16. And I was like, well, that. <laughs> now, and, and the interesting thing there is because it's a naturalization, they can ask that. For federal employees, it's list every organization you've ever been to, excluding political organizations. <gasps> really? Because wow. there were Supreme Court cases uh, right. that, uh, under the First Amendment, right. uh, said they could not ask that. Right. They could ask about violent overthrow of the government. But they could not ask. They used to ask every organization, right. and as you might know, people would be banned for belonging to the ACLU, right. you or, know, and, or the and, Communist Party, of course. Right, and, but yeah. I mean, any so-called fellow travelers um, during the McCarthy era, and, and yeah. in the wake of the collapse of McCarthyism, though much later, the courts had ruled that they could not ask American citizens about political activity. And so that's why it had that exclusion. But it was still, you know, right. rather it, obtrusive. Yeah, um, I, I mean, this is all part of the story because it's it's so interesting to me, the gulf between the stories we tell about what America right. is and yeah. the practice yeah. of what America actually right. is. So one of the most fascinating things that I heard you talking about, we went on this archaeology walk that was held by the Philadelphia Archaeological Forum Doug Mooney is the head of the forum, the president, the president yes. of the forum, and we'll hopefully be interviewing him in a later <laughs> mm-hmm. episode. We've been in touch. But you and Doug took right. us on this walk around Old us City. Us and like yeah. 70 other people. Yeah. Whole- I think that was the Jane's Walk. Yes, the yeah. Jane's Walk. Yeah, yeah, which I had to admit I did not know about. I knew about Jane Jacobs, of course. She's a hero, but uh, in New York, where I came from, okay. she stopped um, Robert Moses, who was <laughs> thing, yeah. the worst person yeah, in the world. putting uh-huh. a... <laughs> basically a highway through lower Manhattan, which would have gone right through Greenwich Village. Right. Sure. 
Basically like I-95 did to us. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) Yes. Now he did plenty of others, but that was his Waterloo and it was Jane Jacobs and many other people, but she was one of the, who stopped stopped it. Anyway, yes, the Jane Swap. Right. And we knew a little bit about this, but I loved the story of George Washington, or as I referred to him in a previous episode, American Jesus. (laughs) who I don't think was that nice a fellow. If you read the story of Owner Judge... Anyway, I have opinions about Mr. George Washington. Are you g- grabbing a book? Uh, no, I'm picture. What is this? Ah! <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Matt, describe the picture that Jed just... just <laughs> so, we've got George Washington in a loving embrace with Abe Lincoln placing a, a crown of some variety of plant on it's his like head with angels. Laurel. Yes, yeah, it's, it's laurel, I think. It's... <laughs> Sorry. Beautiful. And they're clearly <laughs> up in heaven. No, I mean, that's, yes. um, and there are hosts of angels in a sunbeam, like a god ray <laughs> coming down on these two loving. This is American- my elementary and middle school education. Right. And that is exactly right. I mean, right. that's a classic example. Right. Everybody wants saying. to say, you know, who were America's best presence? And we're like, oh, George Washington right. and Abraham Lincoln, you know, we're just. And I mean, this actually, that picture reminds me so much of those horrible oil paintings that that Trump nut does. Yeah. You know the ones? There's like that Trump nut. Where he's, he's like playing basketball. Right, right, right. Like, and there's like one with like Jesus standing behind Trump. Tr- <laughs> I, I think I actually, yeah. I think I I think his think name I've is McNaughton it. or something. Yeah, they're they super like realistic. Parody. Yes. Yeah. yeah, they look like they they're look parodies, parody. but they're there's, super realistic. Yes. yes. But there's one like, of like Jesus standing behind Trump while he's signing some proclamation in the Oval Office. But that's that. It's like the same kind of like iconography and like religious painting kind of thing so and part of me is like oh washington serves this sort of you know god uh god blessed king figure for america as when queen elizabeth the first was like i'm the protestant ruler but i will be the virgin mary for you because you need that iconography to carry on so she restyles herself the virgin mary and then you know george washington kind of becomes american king Mm. because we need this idea Mm. of the what's the the divine right of kings Mm. you know blessed george washington there are statues of him in the form of zeus yes (laughs) right exactly like classical george washington Uh god so you were involved in the archaeology in front of the Liberty Bell here mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, this great icon. And this actually was going on as we were moving into Philadelphia. 2007, we were excavating this. Exactly. So. Right. Um, we had moved to Downingtown, and uh-huh. I was working in Old City. Uh-huh. So I would come out of the Reading Terminal uh-huh. and walk down Market Street. And what's been interesting for me is now reading about everything around what happened there mm-hmm. to me i'm walking by and like oh that's great that's that they cool. just do this right. yeah like this is just right philadelphia is very right. and it, it didn't well, just it happen simple, well no. let's let's set the scene for the people who aren't locals because yes. we do actually have people not from philly listening to this podcast who have no idea what we're talking well, they about right now clearly move to philly I, they should move to philly well, maybe not actually actually maybe we don't want to run at this point but. <laughs> oh yeah it's it's terrible <laughs> no, no, here no, no, you don't want to be here no don't come here we throw batteries at santa you don't want that so what was the digging in front of well, the... F- yeah, the uh, let me like preface this because we kind of... It, your lead-in yeah. kind of, to me, sets it in the context of why I choose to do this kind of work. Yeah. So this idea of, you know, and I don't want to necessarily single out Washington, but the way we take people, historical figures, mm-hmm. and we insist on making them sort of godlike, not human. Mm-hmm. The kind of work I do... 
I like because it helps us understand people in the past as real human beings. Yeah. I, I think it's dehumanizing when you raise somebody up to a deity because by definition, they're not human anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why do we want to dehumanize people in the past, you know, even very significant figures like Washington? Mm-hmm. It's more interesting. It's also more um, it's like really- important, mm-hmm. I think, and more helpful. It helps us better understand the past. It helps us better frame the future and decide where we want to go and make it happen right. if we see people as real people yes. in the past as they are today. Yeah. So I don't think there's anything negative about taking somebody off the pedestal. To me, it's returning the humanity to them. And it's recognizing that people have good and bad. Sure. Um, and that includes certainly Washington. Um, and you can, you know, people make individual judgments about good and bad, but to make them this sort of hallowed figure that they're not human anymore right. and I, you know that just makes them sort of tin pot saints yeah and i don't think there's anything desirable about that so right. having said that washington's a good example and the president's house site is a case where i think it, it it's often difficult to be optimistic about the moment we live in mm. um and has been you know for Even even pre-Trump, frankly, Um, for many of us, Trump makes it a lot harder. But I mean, he's not the originator of that sort of dread that many of us feel about who we are as a country and where we're going. And so in the case of the president's house, it is one of the things that suggests to me that while there's a lot to be discouraged about in our body politic and our politics, there's also healthy things. So the excavation of the site where George Washington and John Adams lived and worked when Philadelphia was the capital and where George Washington kept nine human beings enslaved, the excavation of that site and then the later commemoration of the site only happened because of a grassroots groundswell, a demand by the public, a fairly broad public, but certainly centered here in Philadelphia, among Philadelphians, that that story be told, Mm. that the story of the first president and the enslaved people who occupied a corner here in downtown Philadelphia become better known, better understood, and available to the public. Yeah. That only happened because the public demanded. To me, that's a very healthy sign. Yeah. And the way it happened is really fascinating. So really, the story starts when a local man, Ed Lawler III, who is a local amateur historian. He's actually, by training, an architect. Hmm. In practice, he's a singer and an actor Oh, um, by trade. (laughs) I can relate. (laughs) But he's, uh, yes, but he's uh, he's always been a history buff. And his telling of the story is really fascinating because it's kind of an experience we have. He had visitors visiting him here in Philadelphia. I think they were family members, and he was showing around the city, as you do, you know, people come visit your city. And apparently somebody asked him, where was the place where George Washington you know, Lived. had the equivalent of the White House, sure. you know, when, when he was here in, in the 1790s. And, and Mr. Lawler didn't know the answer at that point. Right. He, he, I think he was kind of embarrassed and chastised that he, a history buff in, mm. in his own town, couldn't answer it. He knew that, you know, it had been the, but he didn't know where. So he decided to find it. I was actually fairly easy to find out. And the site is within Independence National Historical Park in what is part of Independence Mall now. So this Uh, was after the Constitution Center dig had happened? uh, It's about that time, yeah. Yep, exactly. National Constitution Center site excavation centered around 2000, 2003. Not sure when his, exactly when it, but it's it's in that period. And in fact, 
the Park Service was looking at moving the Liberty Bell at that point Mm -hmm. and relocating it. This site turns out to be where George Washington lived and served when Philadelphia was the capital in the 1790s. So Mr. Lawler quickly locates where, but there's little evidence that that was the site. The Park Service had actually had a brass plaque on the site saying this was where, you know, but that was the only way it was marked. The brass plaque was on the wall outside the women's restroom. Oh, no. That That was right over the site of the president's the toilet. House. Yes, it was, the okay, toilet. welcome to the bug house. Yes, yes, yes. Is what George Washington's house with a plaque on the toilet. Yeah, Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, he, he established that, but he wasn't satisfied. He wanted to learn more. He spent many years then doing detailed research, which culminated in um, a very long article in a local history journal, a very venerable journal, the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography. So his article is like 50 pages, takes up like oh the my whole, God. that whole issue. They had to like clear the decks for it. Right. And it details everything you learned about that house. He was mostly interested in the house and it, the color of the walls and like exquisite detail that he sure. dug You might have come across that article. You may have. Because I was going through it. I was like, wow, like yeah. just the depth of trying to yeah. find everything Every about and i yeah. guess as an architect he probably is <laughs> exactly particularly right. right he did some you know speculative drawings based on it you wow. know yeah. giving yeah. his you know but at the very end he has this you know statement that's really almost an afterthought the park service is in the process of building a new pavilion mm-hmm. for the liberty bell which covers part of the president's house site and again, it's sort of a, you know, it is at the very end, it's after right. all the CTLE says, you know, it'll be a very great irony that when this new building opens, the visitors coming to this this symbol, symbol of- this more than this shrine, essentially, it's not legally considered a shrine, that's a, <laughs> that, that is a legal, it's a very specific, that is a legal term right. that is used in the park, it's very specific, it's not a shrine, it's not a shrine. but it, is, it functions as a shrine to the right. Liberty Bell, which is like the preeminent symbol of liberty for, in this country and, and around the world, right. largely, and people come from all across the country, around the world, to see it, millions of them, and he points out they will be entering this pavilion, and as they do, they will be walking across the space at the president's house that our first president designated as a slave quarters, as a place to house the enslaved he was bringing from his plantation in Virginia. That's really, that's, I mean, that's something, right? That's really something. And the Liberty Bell as well, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, was designated the Liberty Bell as a symbol of um, pro-emancipation. What's the word I'm looking for? Abolitionism. Yes, it was abolitionists who gave that that term. Exactly. And that's part of this story. So the article comes out Mm -hmm. um, and it's all very interesting, but it's got that, that, that stinger. That stinger that, you know, and, and then when it comes out, it hits Philadelphia like a thunderclap. Wow. Uh, because a lot of people did not know <gasps> that course. that there were slaves in Philadelphia. Right. Uh-huh. Let alone that George Washington, or that George, exactly. American Jesus, right. earned slaves. You know, I think most people knew he had slaves probably I think you'd country. be surprised. I think there, you, I, you there may. There are some who didn't. You may like, hang around smarter people. Right. <laughs> a lot of people know, not everybody, yeah. but more than used to, let yeah. me show sure. But. Uh, certainly, you know, there are people who didn't, and many people didn't know he brought enslaved people to Philadelphia right. into what was essentially not the first one. I have to say this because, you know, otherwise you'll get nasty letters. Well, he said it was the first. Not, uh, <laughs> the first executive mansion was in New York City um, for just less than a year in lower Manhattan before the executive function was moved by Congress to Philadelphia mm-hmm. temporarily while 
the permanent capital in Washington, D.C., newly designated, was being developed. Um, Can I just say briefly, I grew up in York, Pennsylvania, and they, f- they yes. love saying that they're America's first capital because, but, like, yes. they <laughs> used words on a piece of paper yeah. once. Yes. It cracks me up, yes. the whole fight yes. for who was yes. the first exactly. capital everywhere. <laughs> right. Right. So I totally understand right. the disclaimer. I love right. it. Right. <laughs> And they, they have a tenuous claim, but it's not really. No, no, no. It is what it is. But the designated capitals yes. were New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C. Anyway, this gets way too yeah, light. We're now. in the weeds. But, <laughs> but we have this situation where this article comes out and people are like, you know, amazed and, and angered and a very good historian, academic historian who specialized in early American history and wrote quite a bit about Philadelphia in the colonial and revolutionary era and early federal period, a man named Professor mm-hmm. Gary Nash, read the article. Mm-hmm. I think he was one of the reviewers prior to publication, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, but he read it certainly. And he was you know, struck by it. Yeah. And he gave a speech. He brought it up there and said, this is a, a, you know, a real problem that the Park Service is developing this new building for the Liberty Bell Center over the site. And they're not acknowledging the presence of this important site right. and its connection to the institution of slavery, particularly. Yeah. And so that kind of got people even more riled up, particularly in the academic historians and, and people who sort of fellow travelers, if right. you will, in that world. But also, since it had been broadly reported in the newspaper at the time, it reached broadly across the community. And many people in the African-American community were horrified yeah. that the Park Service was going forward without telling this story. So there was a grassroots movement. One existing activist group began to um, agitate around the issue, and a new one was formed, a group called um, ATTACK, which is an acronym for uh, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. Wow. Yes. The person who was the key person, he he declines to be called the leader or organized, still declines, but he was so key in, in setting it up and guiding it, was a man, is a man named Michael Cord, who is okay. a prominent local attorney and defense attorney. This combination of several grassroots groups from the African-American community, a, an ad hoc group of historians right. who go. called themselves the ad hoc historians, is oh. the name of their group, <laughs> <Okay>. um, also <laughs> began agitating and saying like, you know, Do the Park Service yeah. has to acknowledge and tell this story. Mm-hmm. And the Park Service initially resisted. And the argument given was that the story of slavery is told elsewhere in the park in Germantown at the so-called Germantown White House, Deschler Mars House, where Washington went in the summer. Sure. Sure. But... <laughs> and, well, how do you think that was received? Well, yeah. I mean, come on. And it's like literally sidelining exactly. the history. Exactly. Yeah. So there was, I, I won't go through the details, they're fascinating, mm. but protracted of this sort of outswell of, of interest and demands that the Park Service changed its position, recognized the president's house as a slave site, right. essentially, on the doorstep of the new building that the Liberty Bell was being constructed. But the controversy was sort of broader than that and also focused on the planned exhibits in the Liberty Bell Center, Hmm. which were, frankly, just terrible. Hmm. They were sort of, in my view, classic 1950s consensus history kind of view of the past. There are lots of exhibits like 
I don't know, Liberty Bell coffee creamers sure. and, you know, memorabilia <laughs> right. and, and amazing facts about it. I don't remember the details, right. but it was just... Copies of it. <laughs> right, exactly. Pictures and, of Washington know, ascending to heaven maybe, with Lincoln. You know, yeah. I mean, some of it interesting <laughs> trivia, sure, sure. but not getting... Not and, the and never once telling the public why it's called the Liberty Bell. Right, the abolitionist yeah. story which it was, Which is exactly right. It was... Prior to its getting that name, it was called the Old Bell or the Crack Bell, and it was designated the Liberty Bell by abolitionists specifically to use it as a symbol, as leverage in their fight to end slavery. Yeah. Don't you think that that's, that's a salient kind of important. fact? Yeah. <laughs> this was news to me as of a couple of years ago. It's right. yeah, Many people still don't know yeah. that. Yeah. They think it was always called that. But that's why it's important that people understand that. Absolutely. So the Park Service did relent eventually and decide, okay, we'll scrap the planned exhibits. They were like ready to go in. Wow. You know, money had been spent. You know, they were right. ready to be installed. They were scrapped and they, they consulted with some of the opposition historians and, and the community a bit, developed a whole new set of exhibits that if you go today, they're far better. That was that part of it, but that was not enough. The public still said, no, you need to tell the story on the site right. about Washington and the enslaved people he brought here. Yeah. Two things happened that really sort of changed the Park Service's position. The city of Philadelphia came forward and said, we will put up a million dollars to pay for an installation if the Park Service will approve it. Mm-hmm. And then around the same time, Congress passed a law saying the Park Service will interpret the story of, not the first, the, uh, the Philadelphia, Philadelphia White House, <laughs> um, the Washington household, and the um, slave people he brought in. Wow. So, so federal Congress. Wait. It became, it was a federal law. It's out of our hands. You know, right, right. The Park Service was beginning to switch any, you know, yeah. flip anyway at that point because there was a change in personnel. And so they call you. So they're like, okay, <laughs> we're going to do this, this commemoration and the city's taking the lead and they... They start a non-design competition, design competition. It wasn't technically a design competition, but they put out a request for proposal to designers to design an installation, mm-hmm. a pretty open-ended. It said, you will mark the house, you will tell this story, and you won't dig any deeper than seven feet Interesting. to okay. do it yeah. Yeah. because we knew there could be potentially remains under there. Right. But in the midst of all of this, the mayor's chief of staff at that time, Joyce Wilkinson, at a meeting at City Hall, asked a question. I was at that meeting, you know, along with the other people from the Ark, and they said, if we dug on the site, would we find archaeological evidence? She remembered the excavations a few years prior to that at the site of the James Dexter House on the site where the National Constitution Center is, and the interest that got in public attention and what it offered to tell us and ultimately does tell us about the life of a free black coachman who lived there. So I was asked by the Park Service to write a, a memo, a position paper about what we might and might not find and, and what the sort of legal and Park Service rules are about doing digs and that kind of thing, which I did do. Sure. Um, people tell me it was very pessimistic about finding anything. I, oh. But you have to be. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's what in our case. Yeah. So what, it be, and what I concluded based on what we knew is we'd found when we had done archaeology before the building was built that now houses the Liberty Bell, we had found walls and and down to the basements that were then excavated, which are later, 19th century, indicating Mm -hmm. what we knew, that the earlier structures were destroyed to build newer buildings. We did find at the bottom, one of the basements, this gigantic 
stone octagonal pit, which we at first puzzled about because it didn't match the typical profile for a privy or well Uh um, that we'd expect, at least in Philadelphia, because it was stone and it was octagonal, it was large. And so we considered, you know, briefly, it wasn't that long a period before we concluded we knew what it was, which was the lower portion of an ice pit. Whoa. For an ice house that was on the property that was then owned by Robert Morris. Okay. Who, well, I... Yeah. There'll be more digressions if we go into that. <laughs> yeah, so, but who owned the property that later was used as the president's house. And he built this big ice house. Wow. Washington visited and stayed with Robert Morris oh, no um, during okay. the, you know, in the prior to the revolution. And in fact, wrote to Robert Morris after the visit and wrote, and I'm paraphrasing here, and he writes this letter and he goes, Hey pal, you know, when I was over in your house, you had this, you know, as you know, at your crib, you know, you had this ice house in uh-huh. the back, you know, it was pretty cool. Right. He's like, I built an ice house at Mount Vernon and we packed it full of snow and it all melted. Oh. Like June, like didn't work. It's right. Like, How the hell what do we do? do it? Right. You know, dude, give it up. I want like, I want my ice house, you know. Uh-huh. So I, again, I'm paraphrasing. Um, so uh, I'm pretty sure that was an exact. No, yeah. it was not. Dude, dude said <laughs> no. George Washington. <laughs> but the great thing is, Robert Morris writes back and describes the Idaho. Oh, no kidding. This is oh, how you, this, this is, is how it's built. And it, it. it pretty much matches right. what we have. So now you know I right. found it's the like, foundation okay. of it. Okay, yeah. and it fits everything else to be. So that's evidence of the president's house, but that's the only thing we found right. during the earlier dig for the building that houses the Liberty Bell, which sure. was going up at the time. So we knew that the upper portions would have been gone because mm-hmm. of these late 19th century buildings, but we knew that below them... Maybe. Right. Anything that from the earlier period that had extended originally very deep could still remain. Right. Including the lower parts of wells or privies, Mm -hmm. which might contain deposits, Mm -hmm. and possibly the foundations of the main house, which we knew had a basement. Right. So that's what we said. Sure. And And you can't promise anything. No, exactly. I said that those are the things that could survive. The, The likelihood of survivals aren't high for features with deposits that date to that very brief period when it was a president's house. And so it's not a high likelihood that we would find material that dates to that period, but its sensitivity, its importance was very, very high because if it was there, it might be the only way to learn about what life was like in the president's house in great detail and about the enslaved as well as the rest of the household. And we left it at that. Okay. The city um, then had to, you know, sort of grapple with it. Now we had another meeting and the chief of staff, I'll never forget this, she said we could do the dig. Uh, oh, I also did an estimate of about a million dollars because sure. it's very expensive to dig in urban areas. We'd have to put shoring in. We'd have to relocate utilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's not cheap. So knowing that, she said we could do that. We could do a dig, but it would mean one less rec center this summer. Mm-hmm. So now I'm an archaeologist. You ask me, should we dig? I'm like, hell yeah. Of course, right. <laughs> but, but I've never had it put that way. Yeah. And I was not being asked. And I was glad I was not being asked to make the decision. Right. Because that puts it in stark terms. Yeah. Instead, the city and the Park Service convened a committee, essentially, a sort of ad hoc committee of um, made up of local politicians, but also of the groups that had advocated for the 
commemoration on the site, attack and the other groups. And we had a meeting and they asked me to present. And I laid out what I laid out and sat back and there was back and forth. There was a lot of people who said, no, it's not worth the money. Mm, um, sure. And others who said yes. And it went back and forth for a while. And then Michael Cord said he understood that the dig might produce nothing and that it would cost a substantial amount of money. But he said two things. He said that I remember that I, you know, that I'll never forget. He said, um, if this was something that was extremely important in understanding white history, would you hesitate yeah. to do it and spend the money? Right. And then he said, again, he understood that it might produce nothing that told us about the lives of the enslaved people on the site. But he said, the act of doing the dig itself was an act of respect. Yes. And, and that, that those people deserved to be respected. I found that extremely moving, yeah. I will say, and um, unimpeachable right. argument. Mm-hmm. And right. others did it too. In the end, I don't think it was unanimous, but it was the clear decision was, yes, let's do the dig. He sounds like a great lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, and a, and a um, yes and no. Because <laughs> that kept giving me faint praise. He is extremely articulate and yeah. able to make his case, but he is extremely principled. Yeah. Mm. Which I'm not saying never goes with being a great lawyer, but <laughs> I'm not sure it's a requirement. Yeah. But in if his you're case, on the side of right, it sounds like is, you want yes. him on your side. Right. He Absolutely. sounds like someone who no, could No, it was uh, very, very clear and incisive. He cut right to the point. I think the ultimate point, and, yeah. and and we did do the dig. Mm-hmm. I love listening to Jed talk. He has such great stories from knowing such interesting people and seeing such interesting things. And he's so passionate about the things that he's talking about too. He gets really emotional, and then I get really emotional. Like I remember when we were doing <laughs> that interview, I teared up during this part. And then there were several more points during the rest of the conversation where I also started getting really emotional listening to what he was saying, which you will get to experience in the next episode of The Bog House because this interview is not done yet. Yes, we have a lot more that Jed has shared with us that we look forward to sharing with you, talking about the actual dig itself and having this public archaeology around George Washington's house, around the slave quarters, and interacting with a very emotional public about a very charged topic. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, doing this kind of archaeology in full view of the public just as they're walking by in the street. All of the archaeology I've done feels very enclosed and far away from prying eyes. So this is, it must have been such an emotional experience. And it's been interesting for me just seeing um, in the recent archaeology being done at the West Shipyard nearby, how engaged the public, at least in Philadelphia, is about archaeology and the history of this city. But that's I mean, candidly, it's it's cool that there's an old shipyard there, but I don't think it has nearly the weight of what Jed went through uh, in the mid-2000s yeah. doing this uh, house. And yeah. so um, you're going to hear that story in the next episode. Mm-hmm. And he's also going to talk about Oni Judge and some of the stories from 
Washington's time here in Philadelphia. So stay tuned for that next episode, which is coming very soon. And the next next episode is uh, away from the interview format and back to the ridiculous fever dream adventures of Matt and Mel. Yeah, (laughs) I think we're touching back on some Mifflin stuff. Yeah. Back to Benjamin Mifflin, the horrible old bastard, irascible fucking <laughs> dickhead. But uh, and yeah. some interesting ties between Annapolis and Philadelphia, both uh, modern and not. Yes. So so tune back in soon. I'm Melissa Dunphy. And I'm Matt Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bug House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callahill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Thanks to our audio assistant, Kate, and our research assistant, Clarice. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear. 